Hey everyone, a note on this episode of the podcast. This particular episode was actually a splicing of two interviews that I did. The first with John Pessa, in which we discuss his first book, The Game, and how it relates to the current baseball labor situation. We also did a separate interview about his new book, Yogi, which will be posted in video form on the RAB TV page on romanticaboutbaseball.com. The second interview is with Brad Balukjan, author of The Wax Pack. There we'll discuss the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, a network of baseball writers, myself included, who released books during the COVID-19 pandemic. The club is a focus of the second season of, the sh- of this show, and there will be plenty more to come on that. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Well, th- hey, thanks for that, uh, that slam dunk that you threw down on me there a month or so ago. I mean, does anybody, like, look at a sunset, like, on a beautiful day? What is that cat doing? Uh, Jim is doing that swooshy thing again. I already gave him a little bit of shit. Am I allowed to say shit? I gave him a little bit of shit. And welcome to episode 35 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. My name is Adam McKinnon, your host, and joined by a very special guest, uh, John Pessa, uh, Pulitzer nominee, uh, Pulitzer Prize nominee, and a founding editor of ESPN the magazine. He's also the author of uh, two books, uh, The Game and Yogi. But uh, first, John, thank you so much for joining us. Adam, it's been a real, it's a real pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So, um, you know, w- one of the things you have, you've done excellent work on, uh, the, uh, on racism in, in, in major league baseball, your book, the, your first book, the game is probably one of the most thorough, well-researched behind the scenes type of looks, uh, focus on modern baseball history and really focusing on the 1994 strike. And, which has a lot of parallels to today, the, the mess that we're in today. So I just have to ask, uh, 2020, it, it's got, it's just your year in a way, right? <laughs> it is, uh, you know, I've been getting an awful lot of, um, emails from, from people around the country who read the game and, uh, and friends who are just amazed that we're back to where we started from <laughs> in terms of, of baseball labor relations, the, uh, ex- I expected next year to be tough and uh, heading into, you know, trying to get a deal for 2022. I didn't realize that it was quite as bad. I mean, what we've seen the last two weeks between the owners and the, and the players is just about as bad as it, as it gets. And I think it really, really puts in doubt where we're going to go in uh, for the 2022 season. Right. And, you know, one of the things that, I kind of really the parallels really between the game and and what where we're at today is that there's so much that you know the commi- the commissioner position in particular holds such a, such a hold over over the process. Do you have any thoughts at all on like say like because so much of your book was was in uh, you know um, about Bud Selig and and how he came into into power so to speak and and do you do you see parallels between Manfred and Selig in terms of how they're handling these situations? 
I think I think Bud was uh, a very unique character. Uh, you know, he started out as a minority owner of the of the um, Milwaukee Brewers at a time in baseball when there were still a lot of mom and pop operations, and mm-hmm. there were also a lot of owners who this was not by any means a a, uh, a major part of what they did. And Bud lived and breathed baseball every single single day and he just kind of worked his way up through the ranks knew where all the bodies were buried um and before the internet there was bud Seeley who talked to these people every single day and really the 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 book is the arc of of his his commissionership I and mean, we really start in 1990 it goes through the, the handoff to, to manford and you know bud became commissioner as as almost as a part of self-preservation because he was a small market owner who was going to be driven out of baseball unless they figured out a way to share revenues and um if i may one one Mm -hmm. real difference between what's going on now and what went on their game marvin miller was uh marvin miller who started the the players union um who the players made him actually promise not to take them out on strike, if you can mm-hmm. believe that. Um, that that era was uh, owner-player. You know, the reserve clause fell, and it was really the owners versus the players. Sure. The Bud Seeley era was owners versus owners. It was the rich, big-market owners versus the um, – the, the smaller and smaller market owners and with the escalating um, cable contracts, mm-hmm. I mean, the Yankees were able to blow everybody out of the water um, with the with the amount of money they were getting. Um, so the big market teams were making huge amount of money and endangering the small market teams. And the way the small market teams wanted even the playing field was, let's take it from the players. Right. And that was... <laughs> the entire Bud Selig era. One of the ironies, of course, is here's a man who complained about the uh, uh, salaries for players and and Bud Selig left baseball making $30 million a year with a $45 million uh, golden parachute when he uh, retired. Um, Right now, we are back to owners versus players. I mean, yes, there are small markets, but most of the people who own Major League Baseball teams now are um, are many hedge fund managers, many billionaires. I mean, there are there are no Bud Seelig's. You know, this is my baseball is my only business, mom and pop operations. Sure. So we're really we're really back to the owners and the players. And the reason I thought that we would have trouble going into 2022 was that I that the owners think the union is weak and the owners wanted uh, many structural changes and they thought they'd be able to get it. And they clearly didn't get it in this round, although with what's going on in today's world with the pandemic, it's hard. The only thing I think you can take away from this is both sides don't like each other. Right. And- I wonder, too, like you, you kind of spoke to that a little bit with the, the changing, for lack of a better term, the changing demographic of baseball ownership. You know, do you do you see this as a sort of hurdle for uh for someone like manfred or do you is this more of a compliment to manfred like that he's able to take people who like are probably this is like their second or third business it's not their primary thing how is this a tougher job than what selig had or do you think this is a little bit uh, a little bit easier for manfred rob's got a much tougher job 
of than than Bud had because Bud was um, from ownership, mm-hmm. uh, and right. you know he had he had he had skin in the game, and and he was you know um, by the fifth or sixth year he was one of the uh, longest uh, tenured owners in the game. So uh, so him and the group that he had around him, um, you know they they pretty much ran baseball. Uh, Manford, as Faye Vincent knows so well, isn't is is a very well paid employee. Yes, I mean he does not represent the fans. He does not represent the the best interests of baseball. He's not you know he's not there for the players. He represents the owners. Period. And sure. he, you know, that's uh, he gets his marching. There is nothing that Rob Manford is going to do that is going to be uh, out of line with what the owners want. Those days are, first of all, there never was those days. People, in fact, you know, one of my colleagues from the area here, um, you know, said, said that, you know, Manford was no um, uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Yeah. Um, uh, Judge Landis dealt with the players. Uh-huh. He did not touch the business side of baseball. Now, you know, the commissioner's job is completely different. I mean, he is, and Manfred actually is is right now um, in the best position, I think, of any any uh, commissioner in that he's a labor lawyer. You know, I mean, he knows he knows how this works. He negotiated. You know, he was one of the four people that negotiated the deal in 2002 that ended the streak of every single um, negotiation being either a lockout or a uh, right. or, or a stop. And now, 18 years of labor peace looks like um, we're 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 about to see. We're, that. Yeah, it's about to it, it come to an end, really. And uh, so, one of the things that you know, it, one of the other key players here is not just who represents the owners, but who represents the players too. And and I wonder if you have some thoughts on, say, like Donald Fear and and Tony Clark in terms of in terms of how how they handle it. And I don't know if it's. I think we're kind of in the you know thick of it now. It's hard to say like better or worse, right? But do do you see a, a different tact between the two, like a different oh, style? Absolutely. I mean, Don Don Fear was Don Fear is exceptionally smart, um, a labor lawyer, mm-hmm. brought in by uh, by Marvin Miller, and learned learned the hard way not to trust the owners because the first thing they did was say that they needed to get a year of arbitration back because they were all going broke. And showed him a a um, let's just say a not full um, version of the books, and something that when I interviewed Marvin Miller for my book, um, so many years later, um, the first thing Marvin Miller says, you know, we'll eventually talk about how Don blew that negotiations and gave back that year, something he never ever, and he loved Don, never forgave him for. Wow. Um, but Don Don um, had you know Michael Weiner, great labor lawyer. Uh, Gene Orzer, great labor lawyer. Lauren Rich, great labor lawyer. These were the people that ran the negotiations and what they really had around them. Don was really, really good at having a David Cohn and a Tom Glavin from your area mm-hmm. and Don Baylor um, and and players that would go and sell the deal. And they were part of the process. And they they would tell the, you know, the, the younger players coming up is saying, you know, every the guys before us, you know, got us to where we we are. Do you want to be the first generation of players that makes it worse for the people behind us? Well, now we have a base. Now we have a baseball player in charge. 
completely different. We have you know two labor lawyers um, that are that are in the hierarchy, but you know Dave Winfield and other players are part a part of this, and so it's a it's a different a whole different group, whole different dynamics. Um, better or worse, we'll, I think we'll find out in the next yeah, few years. Right. But I think for sure, the, one of the reasons the owners thought that the that the players' union was weak was because they were not nearly as organized as as the Don Fear and Michael Weiner led union, and that the players at the very top and made so much money that they would break with the rank and file, something that never happened. Uh, ever in, in all the negotiations, and that's really the key. And they think that they can split the players, and sure. that be determined. It's it's fascinating to me too because I I try to think sometimes like, boy, like the the on one hand, you know, the accessibility to players is is something that I think is going to help continue to drive the game forward in a lot of ways. You know, if trying to attract younger fans. Uh, that that want you know social media the ability to interact with players and things like that. First off, I can only imagine that the the if there was Twitter in 1994, how how that would look. Right. A- and and I wonder, you know, speaking to that, you know, the players being able to sell the deal. You look at uh, you know guys like Trevor Bauer. You look at the you know Jack Flaherty. These players that are sort of off the cuff speaking out against uh, you know the against the deal and and maybe in depending on what perspective you have undermining it. Whereas in '94, you've got you know Glavin and, and you know guys that are able to sort of you know they're able to be coached a little bit before they go in front of the cameras. What role do you think that this sort of immediate accessibility and this sort of like off the cuff type of culture? Um, do you think it's hindering or do you think that it's giving fans a little bit more or everyone a little more insight into the process? Well, I think it's going to make, I think it's going to make the, uh, the job for both sides, the people running things, uh, that much more difficult. Cause if you have players like, I mean, Trevor Bauer has been, you know, a, a Twitter sensation the last week <laughs> with everything that he's been, been saying about the, about the various different deals that have been put out there. But if that's the way negotiations are, are going to be held um, and things are going to leak, I mean, one of the tough things when you're negotiating the deal is, look, you know, you want to keep it as tight as possible. You want to iron out the kinks and then bring it back to your respective sides. And you want it kept within your camps and you don't want it leaking out to the press. And that was the, the hard part was, OK, so, you know, some people have favorites in the press and they'd be leaking things. But now when you have the instant access to fans, I mean, some people just cannot resist, like, you know, the person who's running the country, getting on Twitter and saying whatever comes to their mind. And so I think that's that I think that has the potential to make it that much more of a of a difficult negotiations. And I think that, you know, someone blowing off steam can suddenly take something that's close and and blow it right out of the water and can take something when the two sides are starting to come together and make it far more acrimonious. And I think there's a I think there's a lot of bad blood already in the water just from the last two, three weeks over what's what's gone on. And uh, and I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm hearing from fans who are complaining about the players, you know, you know, 40 million people out of work. How can you turn this down? But meanwhile, the players are the ones who are literally taking all the risks. I right. Mean, you know, they are, they, you know, they signed a deal in March that said that 
if someone gets, uh, you know, the, the virus, they won't call the season off. Well, we've already had them. We've already shut down the spring training sites right. with all the people that have been getting it. It's, it's, you know, the way things are going, it's inconceivable to me that we will not see players getting um, coming down with the virus. And I think right. it's a question of how many before that we finally say, okay, we can't finish the baseball season, which I think would be disastrous because, I mean, look, the owners are in a position where six years ago, um, you know, in the last six years, the average um, increase in the valuation of uh, a baseball franchise is $1 billion, not what it's worth, the increase in the last six years. Right. So owners make their money when they sell. And, you know, Bud Selig, you know, paid about less than a million dollars for his stake in the, in the Milwaukee Brewers, ended up uh, with 30 some odd percent of the Brewers, and they sold for $250 million. And uh, so, you know, the, and that is, that is, I mean, think about it. They sold for $250 million, and they're worth more than a billion dollars now. Right. And every, every team in baseball is. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, I think it's going to be um, it, it's really hard to, to see what's you know, where it's going to go, given we don't know whether there's going to be a season and there's going to be any revenue coming in. Um, you know, I'm sure there are teams that overextended themselves with borrowing. Just sure. Like, you know, every other season. American corporation in the world. <laughs> I mean, we're all sitting here wondering what the future is going to look like. I mean, right. is there going to be a 2021 season? Are, will there be 40, 50,000 people coming to, to baseball games again in, in, within the next year? I mean, we could look at a, we can look at two years where baseball isn't making anywhere near the money that it made. Right. We're also looking at baseball players that aren't making anywhere near the money that they that they uh, were making, and what happens to you know their bargaining power? And that's really, I think, when you look at the what how the deal is going to play out, it's hard to see how. The players haven't been dealt the worst hand out of this um, in terms of, okay, I have a short amount of time to play. Right. I, you know, my guaranteed deal isn't guaranteed if there's no game. Um, so, right. you know, so how is, how is the union going to stay together? Tony Clark and his group has a huge task ahead of them to keep that union together. I wonder too, you know, one of the things that I've written about this myself before, where it's just like, I kind of feel like, and I don't know if you would agree with this. I almost feel like the, the players union from the jump and, and, and mostly due to the pandemic. And like you said, the, the sentiment across the country where we're, we're, we're hemorrhaging jobs, people are out of work. Um, the players are, uh, are really in a no, an uphill battle regardless there's, it doesn't seem to me like, it doesn't seem to me like I could envision a situation where the players come out looking really good in all of this. You well, know, public, it, public perception. When when I started the, um, when I decided to do my first book, mm -hmm. um, the people who signed on first um, to uh, and agreed, it really broke down to, into three areas: Major League Baseball, the union, and the New York Yankees. Mm -hmm. Since the Yankees are, were the ones who set this out salary scale when George Steinbrenner was alive for all of baseball. Right. And the union um, said yes um, very quickly. And the reason why and Michael Wiener was was uh, the, the new um, executive director. And he always felt that the that the union never um, its story was never 
were um, told very well and the fans didn't understand um, what the player's side of the story uh, mm-hmm. was. And look, you know, I was explaining this to my wife over dinner. Uh, I, you know, you look at a basketball game and you see that, okay, the point guard is six, seven. I'm not playing pro basketball. No. Um, you, look at a, you look at a football game and you see the size of those players and, and the speed of those players go, there's no way I was ever going to play pro football. But you look at a baseball game yeah. and you can say, I can play this game. Yeah, Mark Lemke I mean, played this game. I mean, how much more of a physical like barrier do you need there? <laughs> I, mean, you know, I mean, Jose Altuve, you know, right. so five foot five, you know, on, on his tiptoes probably. And, uh, you know, an average person can play, an average looking person can play right. baseball. So I think baseball fans you know, look at this and say, I could do this. And, you know, and I would love to do this. Sure. So if you not, you know, take, Hey, you're, you're turning down $8 million, $10 million to play 60 games. I mean, really? Um, right. So from a public relations standpoint and from a fan standpoint, let's remember that these guys also at the end of their career are looking at endorsements at, at businesses and public sentiment, you know, plays a lot, has a lot to do with that. Um, and I think that, that, that this has left them, you know, the owners look bad and the players look worse. Sure. And, and I think it, I wonder if it's even hard, you know, like, like I was alluding to, like, it's even harder for the players because I can, their salaries are public knowledge. You know, I can look at, uh, you know, someone like Ronald Acuna and I can say, you know, I know how much you make this year and it's 20 times what I make. And, you know, um, so I, I wonder too, you know, with, with the sort of uh, uphill battle that the, the union is facing, do you, do you feel, I, I look around cause you met, you made allusions to say like, you know, the NBA, the NFL, and you compare the sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, the strength of the union there, you know, you're looking at two salary capped sports. I'm sorry. You're looking at, uh, you're looking at two salary capped sports. You're looking at, uh, sports where contracts are not guaranteed, you know, things that the union really kind of had to dig in and, and get for their players over, over many, many decades of, of struggle. Do you think that like the, whenever these situations come up that the union kind of has to dig their heels in because, you know, they're so far a, ahead of their, of their contemporaries? Well, you know, the, the owners have made inroads on the salary cap. If you look at the luxury tax, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you look at all the players that the New York Yankees passed on. It's a valid and, point. <laughs> you know, I remember when Matt Scherzer um, uh, came out as a free agent, and uh, the Yankees certainly could have used Matt Scherzer in their rotation. And their their uh, COO um, happened to be in his office um, after Scherzer signed, and he says, "Do you think Matt Scherzer was worth forty eight million dollars a year?" I said, "No." I mean, he didn't get close to that, but no, I didn't think so. He goes, well, that's what it would have cost us. Uh, and it was true because the Yankees were in the in, in the structure of the salary cap where it's 50 cents on the dollar. Right. So whatever whatever they got, they, they're paying another 50 cents. And George Steinbrenner, you know, had his faults, but as a fan of the Yankees, you knew he was putting that, he was putting money back into the team. Right. Um, Hal Stein, Brenner is not his father and mm-hmm. his father was probably the most hated man in amongst owners by by you know leaps and bounds because of that 
because he would take his money and spend and put it back into the into the team. Um, you know, one of the reasons he did that because he knew if they ever sold, um, how much that that franchise was appreciated. Um, but it's um, you know, I think the the, the players are going to. You know, it's going to be tough for them to keep a hold of what they have, given given the fact that we don't know what the future looks like, and given the fact that they're going to be going at least this season with a fraction of what they were making. And you got to remember too, you know, the average the average um, career is four point two seasons. You know, most people, you know, think about like you were saying, OK, so I can look and you're making 20 million dollars and you're making 30 million dollars and you're making 50 million dollars. OK, well, a lot of players don't ever make it into free agency. Right. Not that I wouldn't mind a five hundred and sixty five thousand dollars starting salary um, and two hundred thousand dollars for the, the, the baseball card deal. Sure. And all the other money that's but there's their, you know, their window to make that money is sure. And the number of people we focus on the stars, but the rank and file, they come in and out every year. You know, and one of the things that Gene Orza, who was Don Fears uh, number two, um, and he was, he, Don, Don had many strengths, but communicating wasn't always one of them because he would talk in paragraphs. And Gene would, would, was much more accessible to the, any, he explained to me that how difficult uh, his job was in that he had to make the older players understand that they wanted the younger players to make a lot of money. And the reason they wanted the younger players to make a lot of money is that you don't want to be sitting here and saying, hey, you know what? I got to pay this 32-year-old um, uh, 10-year veteran uh, all this money um, to be my backup uh, second baseman. Right. And, or I can, get, I can pay this rookie you know, a fraction of that and so you want you don't want that fraction to be so so much that you lose your job, which really has kind of been happening in the last, I'd say, five, six years. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be um, I think it's going to be very, very, very difficult for the players to hold on to everything that they have. The public sentiment is against them. The pandemic is is just going to is, is makes such uncertainty. Um, will there ever be 40 and 50? Yes, someday we'll be 40 and 50,000 people back in the stadiums. But I think that day comes after we get a vaccine. Right. And, and who knows when we're going to get that. That's true. Um, and, and with so much conflicting information, I wouldn't even begin to, uh, to, to speculate on that. Um, you know, what, when all this is, and, and, you know, obviously the prediction game is just way, way outside of the reason right now, but I wonder if you could see it, do you see any real structural change in either something that gets negotiated in how negotiations are handled? Do you see any real structural change that can be used by the players as, uh, during this situation, for the upcoming CBA or do you see like anything coming out of either of these situations that going forward, you know, past 2021 can, can make all of this a little easier on everyone? Well, I got to tell you predictions, you know, especially yeah. in, in the current environment are, are, you know, almost a non-starter. What I will tell you is, is that all the people that I've talked to on both sides are talking um, so doom and gloom and worse than I've heard since, 
you know, since the strike in 94. Mm-hmm. And that, that, you know, and they also, they had such a, baseball had such an opportunity to help heal the country, to make, you know, to come in at a time when people are looking for anything to distract themselves, you know, from what, what's, in, what's uh, in front of us. And, you know, even if they tried, you know, and they couldn't get it off the ground, they would have gotten a lot of credit. Now it's a plague on both houses. And sure. now we're back to, I think, you know, what, what, what was stunning to me in, in labor negotiations was in, two, I believe it was 2011, um, the, within, a, within a, about a 14-month period, the uh, NFL, the NHL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball all had their contracts up. The NBA had a labor stop the uh, work stoppage. The NFL had a work stoppage. The NHL had a work stoppage. The only league that didn't is, was Major League Baseball. And if you would have told the veteran baseball writer prior to 2002 that that was going to happen, it was like, what What? What are you smoking? Yeah. I mean, there's just no way. And now we're, you know, it feels like we are right back to the days where every time a labor uh, deal was up, you knew there was going to be a stoppage, which the, with the worst case being 1994, when they just shut it down, you know, with the Yankees and the, and, and the Expos on the verge of making the World Series. Right. And Tony Gwynn, you know, 500. 394. You know, uh, batting 400. Yeah. Uh, you know, Matt Williams pushing 60 home runs. I mean, it was a sensational season. It wasn't just a season they sacrificed. It was a sensational season. And the, the not having a World Series you know, without a world war stopping it, it was, it was just such a breach of trust that if, and if, that it really people, I don't know that people remember what it was like in 1995 when fans came back, which was slowly, it was a 20 cent uh, drop in attendance. And when, and the ones who did come back were throwing bottles and batteries at players in the outfield Right and and some with a sense of humor, like the like one guy who came ran on the field at a Mets game with a handful dollars, of, yeah. of dollar bills and throwing it around the infield. Yep. Um, they they you know, but for um, Cal Ripken, um, mm-hmm. you know, which was a giant feel good story at at the end of '95. It you know, baseball was in some serious trouble. And people have asked me, is like, do you see anything? you know, in the future that once we get through this and we will get through this and there will be a deal, um, will, will help, you know, um, bring fans back because fans are going to be turned off to this. Yeah. I already talked to them plenty of good, really deep fans are saying, I just don't even want to talk about it anymore. I don't, I'm not even going to watch if they come back. And, you know, is there anything on the horizon? Well, again, the prediction game is hard, but, you know, uh, there isn't a Cal Ripken, you know, going after a record as cherished as, as Luke Gehrig's uh, record. Right. And, and, you know, I don't think we can go through steroid inflated baseball again. Not, not, on, not, on, the, not on the radar. Um, you know, what we've been able to do successfully here is, is really channel and, and discuss a lot of the anger that fans are feeling and re- the resentment that fans are feeling right now. You're right. We, you know, I wonder if, you know, because you've got a... A different generation of folks that are going through this right now uh, than than did in '94. So I, I ask you this: um, as a fan, what can what can what can we do? What can a fan do 
to to do we have any sort of power or leverage in this entire equation does it does it involve you know without just ditching the game entirely well i I do think you know we were talking about social media before you know i do think that that is you know it was it was harder to gauge fan sentiment calling radio was like the breakthrough in the in the late 80s um you know, now, you know, you, you can get a, you know, a, a reasonably fair idea about how fans feel about things through Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram and on TikTok, which we just saw what happened. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I think, you know, I do think um, that that the fan sentiment is going to be is, is going to affect things. And I think, again, that's another thing that the union um, has has going against them. Because I think most baseball fans, I was just, you know, I was, I was just at the uh, at the dentist today, and um, people that have been going there a long time, everybody knows what I do, and they all wanted to know what I thought about about baseball, you know, about the, the negotiations, and everyone in that office was complaining about the players, right? Not about the owners, they were complaining about the players, and I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, um, if, uh, I, I'd like to try to end on a positive note, I don't, there's not a whole lot of positive notes in this, in this whole thing, but, um, do you, are you, are you happy with like, you know, the fact that we're playing again, or do you feel like, do you feel like this is like the square peg in the round hole right now? I am, I've been a base, as I said earlier, I mean, my father had me in pinstripes, uh, behind my apartment building in Queens when I was four years old and we watched Yankee games together, you know, for our, our whole life together. Um, it's always been the background music of, of, of summer. I am so looking forward to be able to watch it. Not, not a, not a classic game. I right. want to, you know, I want to see Garrett Cole pitching for the Yankees. I'm a Yankee fan. I want to see Aaron judge who seriously cannot get over a broken rib you know, from September, <laughs> but I want to I, I, I love watching him play baseball. You know, I, I want to see how the Astros are greeted. I'm really looking for, if it's 60 games, I don't care. Right. If they can keep the game on the field, I am happy. I've always been a baseball fan. I will always be a baseball fan. Nothing they can do. Um, and people ask me for my first book, you know, when, when the book was being shopped around, there was one editor who said, Who's, who is the hero? In, in your book, because the main characters were Don Fear, not exactly a sympathetic person. True. Bud Selig, not exactly a sympathetic person. Not at all. And John Steinbrenner, clearly not a sympathetic person. Yeah. Um, the game of baseball. Yeah. I, mean, I think it just occupies a place in this country um, and in the, in, in, in the fabric of our lives that is unique to um, in, in sports. And I just can't wait to... I can't wait to see baseball being played again and we'll deal with next year next year right as as bart giamatti said it has a purchase on our natural on our national soul so i i I live by those words uh so uh you know john we're going to take a quick break here uh i appreciate you coming on thank you so much um absolutely my pleasure adam i've enjoyed every minute
and welcome to another special edition of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. My name is Adam McKinnon and joined by Brad Belukjan, author of The Wax Pack, on the open road in search of baseball's afterlife. Brad, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Adam. Absolutely. And uh, so, you know, the, the book is, is a very unique type of, type of concept. As far as I know, I can't think of another book that like it. But um, I kind of want to start bef- even like way back at the beginning. Uh, what was your baseball life like growing up? Like what is, what is the origin story? Well, I grew up in Rhode Island and always, from as far as I can remember, loved baseball. I think because my dad loved baseball and introduced me to it. And that was, you know, one of his favorite sports. And so it became one of mine. We were very close. And to take, he took me to Red Sox games, Pawtucket Red Sox games, Boston Red Sox games, and really taught me how to look at the scores in the paper and look at a box score. And at some point, I'm sure, brought me my first baseball cards. And so the year that I chose to base the book off of 1986 was the first year that I remember collecting cards as a kid. And I had a collection like so many kids and would go down and, you know, buy wax packs from the local pharmacy and had thousands of cards and would organize them and obsess over them. Um, And my favorite players as a kid were the middle relievers, the utility guys, the underdog players, (laughs) the role players. (laughs) Yeah. I was kind of unusual in that those were my favorites. I specifically wanted to collect their cards. And so Fast forward many years, when I was thinking about different writing projects, uh, I had the idea, I always liked that where are they now theme around athletes. And I was, I still had my baseball cards from childhood and I was, was kind of into these guys, you know, many years later. And so I had the idea that a single pack of cards would be the perfect device to get a manageable and random sampling of players from that era, but also would enable me to write about the guys that were those underdogs, because in any pack, most of the players are going to be more those type players than the right. stars. Mm-hmm. And so it really started out as this just kind of fun, whimsical idea behind a pack and then it was like okay well what kind of book do i want to write based on a single pack because there's a lot of ways you could take it and to me the best possible book would be like if i was actually getting on the road and doing some crazy road trip where i could go and actually try to track down all these guys in person and find out you know what happened to them and as a writer that was the the style that I was that most was most appealing to me where I would get to, you know, be a character in the book and describe what I see and what I hear and what I smell and what I taste, you know, and, and really be an active participant. So okay. that's kind of how, how the whole thing originated. And the original idea was just to find out what happened to these guys. So, and, you know, I, I want to kind of touch on one thing that you mentioned there because you know, listening to a couple of interviews that you've done, the the idea of you as a, as a character in the book was was a pretty contentious one with when you were trying to sell the but when you're trying to sell the idea, is that right? Yeah. So the the style of writing that I most like to do is 
literary nonfiction or uh, creative nonfiction, the, the tradition that was started by the new journalism movement in the 60s with people like Tom Wolfe and um, Gay Talese and, and that whole gang, um, where, you know, you are using the, the style and the techniques of fiction applied to nonfiction. So you're using um, a lot of scene setting details and point changing your point of view and using dialogue. And um, to me, the best possible version of this book would would use that style. But also I needed a way to connect the chapters together because I wanted it to be this there. I wanted it to have an overarching narrative and journey. Mm -hmm. uh, so people would read it all the way through and it wouldn't just be like, oh, let me check out this chapter and then go to that chapter. Right. Um, and so I thought that my and by including me as a character in uh, sort of a main character in the book, I could be that connective tissue between the the players. And um, when I pitched that idea to the pub to publishers, you know, there was a lot of pushback because they said, well, it's you know, maybe it's it's better when the author is not in the story or, you know, no one knows who you are, you know, why, why would anyone care about, want to read about you stick to the baseball, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And did when, I guess, uh, when you're, so it's the type of cover to cover read, you know, it's not like a book that you, that you can pick up midway right. through it. it right. And, um, not a reference book. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's not a coffee table book. Mm -hmm. Although I will say the, the cover very colorful. <laughs> I'm sure it looks good on a coffee table. But, um, you know, what I, did you find like when you were, when you were going through all of this, so you've got a book of, it, it's kind of interesting because you've got this book based on an author that, you know, according to the publishers, no one knows and a bunch of ball players that maybe some people know, you know what I mean? Like the, the just, what? so it's, it's kind of a, I can imagine that probably made more than a few rounds trying to trying to find it. What was the what was the ultimate? Uh, what? How did you pitch it in a way where eventually someone picked it up? That's a good point. That another reason. For, I mean, it got, it got rejected thirty eight times. So among those rejections was also the point of, yeah, no one. These are most of these players were not famous. They're from thirty years ago. No one's going to want to read about them. Um, so yeah, it was uh, having to overcome both of that. And, and, and I think what I was always trying to emphasize was that it wasn't, the book's strength is not, is not, is not, the, not the individual players or even me. It's, it's the idea of um, the bigger themes that come out of baseball, right? Mm -hmm. It's about, I mean, the best sports books are usually not really about the sports. You know, they're about these bigger universal themes and that's, that's what my book was going to sink or swim based on was how well I can bring out those themes that are beyond just what happened in some game 30 years ago. Um, and so ultimately I was able to, um, University of Nebraska took a, a chance on it because I think they saw that potential, they believed in it, but they also they do a lot of baseball books. And right. so they, it's kind of their know, signature. Have, yeah. They have that tradition, yeah. Did um when when you were going through and um, is it a book where for example I know that some guys when they write when they write books about players that they uh, you know grew up with um, not everybody gets a chance to talk to their favorite players you know what I mean like as but you had 
you had a really unique opportunity in this book because you, like me, I'm a, I'm a guy that can relate to um, really loving the role players or the or sort of the second tier guys. You know, uh, I, as an example, I, I grew up in the 90s with the Braves and of all the players, of all the players on those teams, my two favorite players were Mark Lemke and Jeff Blauser. So yeah. like, you know, so I yeah. get that. Um, you had a unique experience where you got, not only were your fit was your favorite player, not a, uh, not a star necessarily, but you got a chance to talk to him in person as part of this journey. Uh, can, can you, was, was Don Carmen like a deliberate choice or was it just, he just showed up in the pack and it was like winning the lottery there? Right. So, um, as I say in, in the footnote in a footnote in the book, I, I did open up multiple packs because if I opened up just one and, you know, several of the guys were dead or something, it, it wouldn't have been a very good book. Right. Um, so I, and I, but I didn't mix cards between packs. So I opened up several packs. Um, and I picked the pack that had almost everyone alive. Al Cowens was the only deceased player and made sure the guys were spread out across the country. So it would be a good cross country road trip book. Um, I did not, you know, some cynics have said, Oh, you just opened packs until you got Don Carmen. That's not true. <laughs> right? uh, but there was a, I mean, him being in the pack certainly was a, a factor in that pack, you know, becoming the one that I went with. Was that like a, um, was that like a holy, holy shit moment where it's just like, Oh my God, Don Carmen, like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was like, please let this pack work. You know, <laughs> I mean, again, if, if that pack had had a bunch of guys that were dead or a bunch of guys that were all living in the same place, you know, I, I would have probably sacrificed that for another pack. But mm -hmm. it was a good mix. Um, and so, so yeah, I, it was like I totally geeked out um, over him being in the pack. And then, to your point, getting to meet him, um, I mean, I... I <laughs> I had been a little, I was a little wary of meeting my heroes because as I briefly mentioned in the book, I, no, 10 years prior, I had left my job to go try to write the biography of the Iron Sheik, a professional wrestler who was my favorite as a kid. That's, that, that that's a left turn. That went so, <laughs> yeah, that went so sideways. He was so crazy, he threatened to kill me. Uh, he was on all kinds of drugs and, that was such a bad experience that there was a part of me that was like, okay, well, it can't be any worse than that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I was, I was, uh, you know, I mean, and they generally say you don't, you know, you really don't want to meet your heroes because you put them on such a high pedestal. Sure. But I got to say, Carmen, you know, it's my favorite chapter in the book is the section with Don Carmen and the person that he turned out to be which I had no way of knowing how much I would have in common with him and how much of a sort of an, an, a uh, closeness or kinship I would feel for him get once I got to know him a little bit mm -hmm. in person in, on the, you know, in, on the road. So the, you guys shared a lot of life experiences and, and one thing that from the, from the excerpts that I've been able to read um, it really does, you know, and I, it does a good job. And I think this is kind of the mission of the book, if I'm not mistaken, is to really kind of humanize, uh, these players that are, 
so accessible. You know, we, we talk a lot as the duality of the major league baseball player, which I don't think NFL players or other players have this as much because an MLB player can look a lot like you or me, you know what I mean? And they, they do so much that looks so routine. Um, and yet they're, they're so distant from us. Uh, what you, I, what it seems like you do in this book is you, you're bringing, you're trying to bridge that gap in terms of just what happens after they hang up their uniform. Yeah. I mean, that, that really is the focus of the book is who they are as people, how, you know, how the rest of their lives turned out after they were no longer in the spotlight. Um, and a lot of unexpected things coming up about their relationships with their fathers, which tended to be very kind of broken and, and dark. And I didn't know that was going to be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading uh, another guy in the pandemic baseball book clubs book, uh, Boughton, uh, Jim Boughton, mm-hmm. who wrote ball four, uh, Mitch Nathanson in our, in our club wrote it. And that's, it's a, it's a really good book. And I'm reading that about how ball four just blew people's minds because it showed the, the human side of baseball players, you know, and even more so back then in the late sixties, they were, these guys were, they were, you know, completely, um, their, their real personalities were completely hit, uh, hidden from the public. And so, um, I, but I think, you know, I mean, my book is very much written for fans to see who they are as people, but also I think for anyone, including other baseball players, just to see kind of, you know, what, what life is like after the spotlight is done. Right. And that's, you know, it's interesting because yeah, I mean, you, you hear so much about them and, you know, of course, if you're Chipper Jones or you're Joe Morgan or you're, you know, um, other players like that, you go into broadcasting, Bob Euchre, you know, you, you sort of have a life after baseball. I don't know why I picked those names out of there, but it's, it's just what I'm going with. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, you know, it's Euchre. I, I got to throw them in there somehow. <laughs> um, but you, when you, what I, what I found most interesting is that you, you're, you just, you found these guys, you tracked them down and it seems like they were, for the most part, pretty willing to talk to you. Were, were there any, were there any issues that you had with accessibility? Like, uh, you know, some players being more or less or at all accessible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, so there's a few chapters in there about more of the chase that's ultimately unsuccessful um, or sort of successful. So Carlton Fisk is a guy that the most famous player in the pack hall of famer, and unlike most of the rest of the guys, you know, he's been able to kind of continue to live on his fame, mm-hmm. um, but it's also really difficult to, to, he doesn't really talk to the media, you know, not, doesn't come across as particularly friendly to the, the fans. So for, for him, I really had to go to like extreme length. So that chapter is about, it's, it's kind of over the top. I mean, I found out from a source where he golfs in Florida and posed as a millionaire um, interested in buying a house on the golf course where I could sneak in and ambush him. And it's this crazy kind of off the rails story, um, of me going to extreme lengths to get to him. Um, but yeah, he was not someone that was wanting to talk to me, nor was Vince Coleman, uh, Dwight Gooden wanted $500, which I agreed to provided I would disclose that in the, in the book. And then I get to his house in long Island and, 
I'm in his living room talking to his son and he's he completely no shows. So that chapter is is about what's happening in his life and you know the ongoing sad story of Doc Gooden. So yeah, I know the book is I think better actually for not having success with everybody because it you know adds some dramatic tension and some some adversity to the story. Well, it's it's and it's perfect for a sport really built on failure that did nothing that it go doesn't go as planned all the time. Um, yeah. And that's really, I mean, that's really one of the themes in the book is how we as people handle fear mm-hmm. and how do we manage fear? And um, you know, fear is really just the fear of, of failure or, you know um, so, well, I guess both how we, how we handle past failure and how we, how we manage our fear about the potential of future failure. And so baseball, there's this nice parallel in the book between me talking about my struggle with OCD and the mistakes that I've made uh, and how I've, you know, OCD being just a, a, an anxiety disorder. Um, so how have I navigated that and how is that similar to the way that baseball players, the players that I meet up with, that how, how they were able to manage fear in a way that was allowed that allowed them to be successful both during baseball and after baseball. Was there a, um, was, and you kind of mentioned the, the uh, paternal, the father relationships sure. in all of this as a yeah. sort of uh yeah, yeah, I, I, I do words. Um, a, uh, a, a, you mentioned that as a sort of ongoing theme, a sort of connecting theme between a lot of the players that you talk to. Were there, were there any other themes that, that you came across, uh, during that time or, uh, or was that kind of the, the underlying tone of, of the, of the stories? Yeah, there were other themes. Like I was, I was surprised at how few of them were really that nostalgic about their baseball careers. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't really seem to like with Gary Templeton, I, I put on a game from the 1984, uh, NLCS and he was like he lasted like half an inning and he's like turn this shit off like he was (laughs) he was like he didn't want to watch it and you know I think a lot of those guys they you know they'll answer questions about their careers but it's not like they were I mean I think if they were around each other they would probably enjoy reminiscing but with like with media or the fans I think they're you know they're not particularly excited to rehash even the things that they did well um and, you know, why that is, it's probably a combination of being tired of being asked those questions, um, but also maybe that it kind of hurts to be reminded of what you used to be, you know? Right. Yeah. It's And sports is unique in that way. It's like you're an athlete, you know, once you're over 35, you're, you're retired, you can never again do what you did. Right. I mean, if you're a musician, you can still play your hits at 65, maybe not with quite the same. Most, zip, most but people, most much. musicians are playing their hits at 65 right. and, <laughs> and people will still go and they'll still watch, you know, um, or if you're an actor, you can still and look at Clint Eastwood and Harrison Ford. Right. I mean, so even in the entertainment world, it's like athlete athletes are kind of unique uh-huh. uh, because every other artist or entertainer can continue to do their their thing do you so that's that's the thing about about sports is that it's um it's got to be i mean i can't relate to that directly what it would feel like to know 
how it used to feel like and not be able to do it again. Right. Do you, do you, and, and that's, that's another point where it's kind of like, you know, we both work day jobs. Um, I doubt that anyone in 20 years is going to be, you know, driving across the country trying to figure out what biology professors and retail workers do. You know what I mean? But so I could definitely see that. And, and that's not no disrespect. You know, you are a biology professor. I'm a retail worker. There's no disrespect to those professions. But let's just say the legacy factor isn't quite as high. Um, right. And so I, I wonder, was there a when you go across and you talk to these to these athletes and you know they're talking about they're does it did it almost feel like they were disconnected from it or is it almost kind of like yeah, i think that's fair i think that i don't think that um they it's like a big part of their day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. you know um again unless you're like a gary pettis who was still coaching the houston astros i mean um so, yeah, I think, I don't think it, it plays much of a, of a, I mean, especially, you know, it's now been 30 years. So, I mean, I'm sure the first few years it was a little different, but yeah, yeah. I think that, I think disconnected is a, is a pretty good way to describe it. Okay. And, and this book in general, you know, to, to shift gears, no pun intended, is your car a stick shift that you drove with all these miles no. with? Okay. No, no. You're not no. a glutton for punishment that way. Um, but, uh, you know, to shift gears a little bit, you know, this book, you know, we've talked about it a couple of times where it was really kind of an epic undertaking. And of course, um, you, it gets released, uh, during the, uh, the shit storm that is 2020. Uh, it was somewhere between the murder hornets and the pandemic and, you know, before civil unrest. So, um, I wanted to, uh. I wanted to ask, like, what was like April, April 1st is the release date, which is like right in the, the very height, of right it. in the right in the heart of it. Um, you yeah. know, it, it sounds like, you know, with a lot of authors, like they would probably be like, oh, man, like the, what a cruddy time to release a book. This is this is probably the biggest challenge that I'll face. I mean, as, for everything you, that you went through with this book, this was this was probably like, you know, like nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, um, well, you know, it's been, it's been great to, so you're, you know, you had the similar situation with the book coming out and, and, you know, the pandemic baseball book club has been a wonderful response to all of this. And so I'm really grateful that we've, we've done this and, um, and that the book is still done really well, despite all that. I mean, yeah, I would not say that the pandemic in terms of affecting my book is even in the top, like, you know, three necessarily in terms of obstacles <laughs> with this whole book overall. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, tell, you know, for those of us, for those listeners who may not know about the Pandemic Book Club, um, you know, you and uh, Jason Turbo uh, were, and uh, Eric Nussbaum, a couple other folks were really kind of, you know, on the ground level with this. Um, can you kind of elaborate a little bit on what all of that is? Yeah. And how, how do you, you know, Eric personally, right? Uh, yeah. Eric and Eric has, is a friend of the show. Uh, Eric's a friend okay. of the show and, uh, he, he came on, uh, right. Actually it was like right before all of this started, like he was like the last guest before pandemic oh, okay. time, I think, uh, check the date on that, but yeah. Yeah. Well from my, so a couple of things like, uh, Jason Turbo who lives near me here in the Bay area in California was going to do my, uh, opening my book launch on the 
April 1st, he was going to be with me at a local bookstore in conversation. Um, I, I had met Jason and knew him a little bit just from, he had helped me a lot early on in the, in understanding and navigating book publishing. Um, and then in the, right before the pandemic on Twitter, you know, I had done a lot on Twitter and I at some point said, Hey, I'm going to start just like promoting other people's books that are baseball related and like kind of help, you know, it's to me, it was silly to see them as competition. We're all, we all have books coming out at the same time you know, let's all help each other. So I just started tweeting strangers and saying, hey, so-and-so's book is coming out and so-and-so's book. And then they would, you know, help, you know, return back. And then I did that with Anika Orak and uh, she wrote back and said, hey, we should, you know, let's let's talk about how we could all make this a little more formalized. Mm-hmm. And I think she had a similar conversation with, with Jason. And so we just had an email chain and it was me and Tyler Kepner as well, uh, and Jason and Anika, and at some point Eric got in there, and we all said, "Hey, let's you know, let's um, try to do something a little more organized." And so Anika, with her artistic talents, was able to whip up a you know wonderful logo and some art stuff. And Jason got on the website, and I taught myself podcasting in a weekend. And <laughs> not very good at it, but just enough to use you know GarageBand and. Um, and so we were kind of off off to the races and uh it's been you know we're up to 25 i think 24 writers now yes yeah we're gonna, really we're gonna have to start giving out badges you know what i mean yeah, <laughs> yeah. we'll be like the bbwaa like you get like a badge yeah, number <laughs> that's right we have a panel our first panel tomorrow and um you yeah know, so i think it's it's going to be fun. What a, you know, it, it's fascinating because I've talked to a few authors in the club and, you know, there's one sort of uh, theme that I, I've, I've kind of wanted to, and I'll ask you about, you know, it, how it, it seems we all wrote books about a game, you know what I mean? And with everything happening and going on and, you know, of course we can kind of like, you know, shrug our shoulders and just be like, oh, yes, something else. And then, and then the civil unrest begins and, and, you know, completely justified uh, on everything happening there. Is there a, did you ever find a situation where you were kind of like, ooh, I should probably like just, just chill for a minute. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, a couple of, a couple of times, like I remember right when, things were really hitting the fan in March, like March 12 around then mm-hmm. um, when everything suddenly kind of screeched to a halt. I was on Twitter and I was like, I just, for a couple of days, I didn't feel comfortable tweeting about my book at all. Um, and then similarly with the George Floyd thing, there were a couple of days there. Um, so yeah, I think that uh, that's been a consideration. And at the same time, um, we all worked really hard on our books and you know, people still need a diversion and it is a game. It's entertainment. Um, I think it's really helpful to, to read entertaining things right now. Right. Um, and I don't think it has to be like either or, you know, do you feel like, you know, with everything you went through with this book, with everything go, you know, that, you know, it almost feels like with this book that it, it's almost like an escape, like almost you, you, you mm-hmm. sacrifice so much of your time and you, and you put so much into this that it, it almost does feel like you, you really put it on the line for, for people to have a little bit of an escape from the day to day life. 
Um, it, you know, it seems it seems almost more appropriate now. It seems like books like the Wax Pack are more needed now than than ever. Right, and, and that's completely you know by chance because I think even without the pandemic, yeah, I was des- it was designed to be escape escapism. Um, you know, part of why I liked writing it in the style that I did was that the reader could put themselves in my shoes and go on the road with me and go to all these places and know what it looked like and sounded like. Um, and I mean, it really is, uh, you know, it's, it's going to get shelved under sports, but it's also, it's as every bit as much a travel book as a sports book. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my training is actually in travel writing. I, my first job out of, out of school, college was, working as a, at a travel magazine called islands for a few years. So I hadn't even really thought about that very much until recently. I was like, Oh yeah, you know, my kind of all my training was in travel and um, this book is, I'm always moving in this book. And right. so it is a travel book. Um, and again, because travel is not something that can be done very much right now, it's, it just turns out that it's even more um, needed or appropriate right now. Definitely. And, uh, so I, I gotta ask, um, is there like, could, is there a sequel to this? Uh, are we, are we, are we going to go to like, is there going to be like a year by year, like high, you know, uh, 1987, 1988. Well, so I get asked that a lot. And, um, uh, some people were disappointed that I'd say that, no, I, that I have no plans to do a sequel, <laughs> although I would welcome anyone else to do it and would gladly read their book. Um, just because I don't think it's creatively, um, there's much that could ever top what I did. I mean, right. in terms of my own, my, I mean, I told my story, like nothing, I, I'm, I don't have that much more story to tell about me and my, my life. Um, so that's done. And then I think that, you know, so much of the charm of this book is the novelty. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of going back to the same thing creatively for a sequel. And it's usually not as good. Right. So uh, I have other ideas that I'd like to think about book wise that would involve this style of writing, but probably more likely in other areas. Okay. And so the wax pack too, even waxier is, is not, (laughs) is wax, wax on what? No. Right. 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 Okay. All right. I'll bet you, you've done a lot of highbrow interviews. You know what I mean? You've done a lot of, uh, is that me? Oh, that's me. This is as eyebrow um, as he gets at him. Yeah, see, you know what I mean? Like, you know, NPR was slumming it. This is, you know. Ben, ben Lindbergh did doesn't ask these level of questions. I know I know that. I know that. <laughs> that was an I had fun with that show. But I, I mean, those guys are really like I knew from reading their books they were gonna be brainy, but I was like, and I'm a nerd. I mean, if I have a you know, PhD, it's certainly I know what nerds is or what being a nerd is all about, but I was like, man. These guys are like they're they're hardcore. they're next level. That that is that is banter. That's MVP level banter. Like they're like yeah. that. They're Barry Bonds level of banter. Um, right. I, I I love that. I'm a regular listener of the of that show. Um and uh, and I and Ben Lindbergh, come on, come on the show. Keep, yeah. keep, you yeah. saw what happened when Jeff Passan kept trying to duck me. Um, right. So right. Oh, I, read I read your thing on her. So that was great. Great. <laughs> oh yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, that was, that was, you know, it, it took me 33 episodes to have my first horrifically embarrassing moment on a podcast. And I, and I hey, man, nailed you, I, it. I tried to, I, whenever I've written Jeff Pass and you won't write me back. So you got him <laughs> you know, having him on the show is, 
You got it. All you need is a running joke and to just like, you know, super cut like five or six times of you calling him out on the, you know, that's all you got to do. Come on. Come on. Right. Uh, well, uh, hey, Brad, great. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me for a little bit. Uh, it's awesome. Yep. Um, the pandemic, you've got the first panel. Can you tell folks a little bit more about what's going on tomorrow? Yeah. Um, so it'll be up. I'm sure we'll put the, the video up in our in our audio as well, but we're having the uh, icons and, uh, and iconoclast. So uh, I think I'm in the behind the scenes producer role, but it's going to be John Pessa, who you've had on, mm -hmm. talking about Yogi, Mitch Nathanson, talking about Boughton, uh, Dale Tafoya, talking about Billy Ball and Billy Martin, um, John Shea, talking about 24, the Billy Mays book. And who am I missing? Who else is our an iconoclast and an icon? Uh, I'm, whoever whoever I is, I'm, for, I'm forgetting. I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm blanking out right now. But there's, I think there's five uh, five writers that are going to okay. be coming together and and chat. Oh, Jason. Sorry, yeah, Jason. Oh, yeah, Jason. Jason. Yeah, Jason Turbo. That yes. guy. That guy. Uh, probably talking about the Dodgers and the A's. Um, so yeah, it should be fun, and hopefully we'll do more of those. Excellent. And that's the point of the, you know the club is is to. In, in you know, it sort of link a, a group of people who who had this one common thread, and and I think that's yeah. probably that's probably what I find like one of the most engaging things, and what drew me to the club was just that there was this group of people that otherwise maybe know each other, but for, in more of an arm's length capacity, um, right. are just are drawn to this to this single event that that really 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 we should have taken the wind out of our sails and yet here we right. are yeah yeah exactly so well brad cool. thanks thanks again man so i really appreciate it yeah thank you appreciate it yep